You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, October 3rd, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. I'm excited because we're going to be spending the next seven weeks in the Gospel of John, and and not just in the Gospel of John going start to finish like we normally do with a book, but we're going to be spending seven weeks in seven very specific, very particular places in the Gospel of John where Jesus speaks very directly about who he is. These are known as the I am passages of Jesus. And as we listen and we hear him, he is going to challenge a lot of notions that many of us have about who he really is and what he's like. Have you ever been in a situation with someone where you've interacted with them and you realize in your interaction that they're working off a perception of you about something they've heard about you from someone else and they have this perception of you that's the furthest thing from reality and you're having this interaction with them and You're like, who are they even talking about? Well, if you've ever had a a moment like that, you have the smallest inkling of an idea of what it's like to be Jesus. Because if there's anyone who is dealt with on the basis of perception and misguided expectation, it's him. And for seven weeks, we're going to hear him speak very specifically from himself about who he is. And as we listen to him say what he has to say about himself, In listening, we're going to have to face some very honest things about ourselves as well. And as we listen and hear him speak of himself and we see more of ourself, Jesus is going to challenge a lot of notions, a lot of ideas that you and I have about what it really means to even follow him, about what Christianity really is. And as we get started, I just want to give you a fair warning. The real Jesus pulls no punches when he speaks to people. He doesn't hold back. There's too much at stake for him to do it, and he knows it, and he won't do it. And so this morning, let me just pray very quickly for our time in God's Word, because we're going to need him to do a miracle that only he can do to give us the ears we need to have to be able to hear what he has to say. So, Holy Spirit, I ask as we go to your Word, you give us the ears we need to hear Jesus speak so clearly that in our hearts we can see him for who he is, that we might be able to enjoy him fully. We ask that you would do this in his good and glorious name. Amen. Uh, Mark Twain is famous for a number of things. Almost everybody who has gone through school and has had to read Twain or has heard of Twain, can probably quote one or two things he's probably said, or you quote a lot of things you didn't know that Mark Twain actually wrote and said. And one of the things that I've always loved that Mark Twain wrote was this. He said, most men die at 27. We just wait to bury them until they're 72. (laughs) And you laugh, but you know what he's getting at. He's touching on this deep reality that we all experience and we all wrestle with, the deep reality of the difference between merely existing and actually living. That most men die and just exist from young adulthood on to the day we bury them. They never really live. But no one wants to just exist, do you? 
Does anyone really just want to say the sum total of my life was I existed? But the reality of it is we have to ask the question and re-wrestle with it every single day. What does it mean to really live? What does it take to really live? I mean, what makes life worth living? What can provide that sense of being known, being seen, being valued, being included? Because if we're honest, some of the deepest fears that we all have are being invisible, being worthless, being excluded. I mean, that's the sum total of just existing, really, if we're honest. And so we wrestle with what does it take to actually live? And all around us every single day, there are a thousand and one things promising life, promising to give us what it is we need to actually live, to be known, to be valued, to be included. If we just have a particular amount of money in our bank account and a particular status, a particular level of authority, a particular scope of beauty even, and then we'll continue to be known and, and valued and be a part. You know, just yesterday, my wife took my kids to get glasses at the store and she sent me a text and I, I couldn't believe it, but there's nothing more mundane than going to buy eyeglasses. And you go into the eyeglass store and there's this picture that's got to be four foot tall of a barely dressed celebrity who is crested over the, the 55 mark in life and she's dressed like a 14-year-old standing in front of an arcade game half naked and not wearing glasses <laughs> in an eyeglass store. Because if you can just keep this particular beauty, you can stay relevant, stay known, stay included, stay valued. It's a thousand and one things in our world that promise to be able to give us life. But in the end, if we're not careful, the very things we go to to have what it is we think we need will ultimately exhaust us, keep us needing more, and in the end, failing to deliver what they promise. C.S. Lewis called these things the sweet poisons of the false infinite. You can sit on that phrase for a while. The sweet poisons of the false infinite. Falling for false promises over and over again. A thousand and one things pitch us every single day a path to life. And they pitch us a 99% lie. And this reality is being taken to unbelievable extremes in our day. A day that probably wasn't imaginable just two or three decades ago. We live in a time which sociologists are now calling a time of hyper-reality. In fact, in 1981, a French sociologist coined the term hyperreality, and in his paper, he was dismissed roundly by his contemporaries in 1981 for fanciful ideas. That's crazy. But in his paper, he would define hyperreality, if I can boil it down to a way that we might be able to understand, 
is simply a world where simulations of the world seem more real than reality itself and more appealing than reality itself. And in 1981, his contemporaries said, that's crazy. Well, at the same time, in the late 70s and early 80s, over in the, in, in the biological world, in the zoological world, entomologists were running studies with monarch butterflies. They ran a study where they created a cardboard replica of a female monarch butterfly. But the cardboard replica was larger and the colors more vibrant than the colors and the size of a female monarch butterfly. And they put the replica in the cage with the real butterflies, male and female. And to the butterfly, to the one, every male monarch butterfly tried to attach itself to the cardboard replica while the real thing was right next to it flapping its wings. The male butterfly never realized it wasn't real. Hyper-reality. Unless you dismiss it into the world of monarch butterflies, last year, Forbes magazine, 2020, February, there was an article written about this. The author said, we now live in a day and age of hyper-reality, a world in which simulations of reality seem more, than rea- more real than reality itself. The virtual world that we all have to deal with now even has its own economy. 2.5 billion people spend over $100 billion a year on virtual goods, not real things. Virtual goods. Global brands are scrambling to enter the virtual world. Recent attempts, he said, include Nike's League of Legends partnership and Gucci's $10,000 virtual dress. $10,000 virtual dress. For corporations with a global reach and physical distribution, that means they physically have to distribute real things, the virtual world represents an untapped opportunity to amass 10 times revenue without having to manufacture a physical product. This writer goes on to say, we can no longer distinguish between the two realities. But more importantly, the distinction wouldn't matter because people are deriving equal meaning and value from the simulated world. Hyper-reality, he said, allows individuals to avoid the hardship of life replacing it with a world perfectly calibrated to their own tastes, a simulation of reality without origin. A mere existence, not really living. Friends, this morning, Jesus is going to offer us a way to truly live, to truly live, a way out, from becoming just another statistic. But it's going to take having ears to hear. And so if you've got your Bible and you need to use maybe the Bible that's on the pew in front of you, you can open it up to page 891 if you're using the Bibles that are right in front of you. Our first encounter with Jesus this morning is in John chapter 6. Now, I forewarn you, John chapter 6 is the longest chapter in the entire New Testament. And our text for the morning is lodged right in the middle of it, which means what comes before it and what comes after it are very important to understanding it. So we're just going to hear 
what John records for us this morning, and I'm going to try to pay attention to the clock as best as I can. But John chapter 6, as you open it up, and even in verse 1, it starts with a familiar story. I'll try to summarize it for you. Even if you really didn't grow up in the church or weren't around the church, you've probably heard something about this story before. A large crowd has begun to gather to hear Jesus teach on a hillside. Scholars say probably upwards of 20,000 people, men, women, and children all together. And Jesus looks out at this crowd, and he looks to his disciple, Philip, and he says, where are we going to get some bread so that all these people can eat? Philip responds in a very human way. He says, Jesus, 200 denarii, which is six months' wages for them, six months' worth of wages, isn't even enough money to buy enough bread for everyone even to have a bite. I mean, come on, Jesus. Andrew, ever the astute one as you read the stories, looking out, he says, look, hey, that boy's got bread and loaves. Jesus, we can jack that guy's lunch. Little boy, he'll give it to us. We're bigger. You know they were thinking that. We're bigger. We can get that. And so they get that little boy's lunch. Loaves and fish. And Jesus gives thanks. And then Jesus just begins to feed the crowd. And he begins to distribute this bread and this fish. So much so that the 20,000 ate till they were full. And John tells us there were 12 baskets of leftovers. And if you look down in your Bible, down at verse 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. (laughs) Yeah, they were. Scholars will tell you, you go and read this stuff and study this stuff in Palestine in that day. It was normal for the average family to spend somewhere around 80 to 85% of their annual income on food alone. Very few of us in this room know what that means, know what that reality is like. Some may have a taste of what it's like. There are many parts in the world today that still this is reality, but 85% of everything you took home went to just keep you alive. This dude just fed you with loaves and fish. Make him king. If that thing scales, he just put 80% of your annual income back in your pocket. Yes, sir. Let's take him. Read it like a human. But Jesus understood what was happening. So verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and they got into a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So Jesus is still up on the mountain by himself. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now, if I stay on my time, we're going to come back to this because it's important in the bigger picture. But just notice, read it like a human. John was on the boat. He didn't say, we saw a man and we were scared. They knew exactly who it was, and that's why they were scared. He's walking on the water, four miles out in the middle of the winds. And they knew who it was. That's why they were frightened. We'll we'll come back to it in a minute. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, not like they rode faster, 
immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Four miles out in the ocean, winds are going, Jesus walking on the water, he gets in the boat and all of a sudden they're at the shore. It's crazy. But here in verse 22, so we kind of pick up the, the main part of what we're getting at. Verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat and that Jesus didn't get in the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone on away alone. So they're all like, where's Jesus? It's a new day, new bread. Come on, where's Jesus? Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got into the boat and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, that's a great phrase. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with seeking Jesus, is there? That's a good thing, right? It really just depends on what Jesus you're seeking. Were they seeking the real Jesus or were they seeking their perception and their expectation of who Jesus was and supposed to be? Well, you got to keep reading the story. So verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, when did you come here? Now listen to Jesus, right? No punches pulled. I told you. I warned you ahead of time. Jesus answered them, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you. That is strong, double mean right there. Truly, truly, that's strength. That's a raised voice with emphasis. I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He didn't even answer their question because their question didn't matter. Jesus went straight to their heart. He lays that thing open and he's going to bring it out into the light because that's what the real Jesus does. He's not going to conform to their perceptions and expectations. He's going to go after their heart. And he's going to cut it right down the middle. And he's going to lay it open. And he's going to offer what only God himself can offer for that heart. That's what the real Jesus does. So you don't want me, Jesus is saying. You don't want me. You want a full belly. You want the hope of some income back in your pocket. You totally missed what the sign pointed to all together. See, what they wanted was what you and I would call in our day a prosperity gospel. And before you hymn and haul and yes and amen, be human. You have to admit it has an appeal to it. But listen to Jesus. I fed you, you liked it, and now you're seeking me for all the wrong reasons, and I can see straight through them all. You want my usefulness, not me. And that's not okay with Jesus. It's not okay with the real Jesus. It wasn't then, and it's not now. And if we're really going to be honest with ourselves, we're all guilty in different measure of this. It was James Boyce, the great pastor from Philadelphia, who said it's possible to be so focused on our own needs that we're actually only focused on ourselves and not Jesus. 
And in this way, we never actually get the solutions to our problems that Jesus actually wants to bring. He can see straight through it. But don't miss it. He's not done with them. He's not done with them. He doesn't walk away from them any more than he walks away from us this morning. So listen to him. Look at verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And it's right here. It's right here if God would give us the ears to hear that Jesus is going to start setting some people free to live. Free to actually live and not merely exist. And I say that because it's, it's helpful to understand that when John is writing this gospel, they had two words at their disposal that you and I would translate as life. But both words translated as life mean different things. They emphasize different things. So when Jesus is speaking here to not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, John had two options. Jesus had two options. The first is the word bios. You can imagine the words that we get from that, biology. Bios in that day referred to a quantity of life, the physicality of life, the nuts and bolts of human existence. But that's not the word Jesus used. Jesus used the other word he had at his disposal, which is zoe. Zoe means a quality of life. He's not, seeing, he's not speaking here about a food that endures to eternal existence, eternal bios. He's talking about a food of eternal quality of life, an altogether different kind of living. It's a difference between just existing and living. Jesus is telling them that they're settling for a lie that's leaving them stuck in just existing the sweet poisons of false intimates, hyper-realities in our day that aren't the real thing. That every day, 10,001 things pitch a 99% lie and we swing every time. But there is a food, there is a bread that brings life. It doesn't leave you to just exist. A bread that brings zoe a quality of eternality, a quality of eternal life. So don't work for the lie. The lie just leaves you empty and existing. Work for the food that brings life. So verse 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Right, natural question. These are our people. Great, I don't want to just exist. I don't want bios. There's zoe. I want, I want the quality. I want the life. Now tell me what God wants me to do. I'll do what God wants, and then I'll get what God has to give. What do I have to do to get this stuff from God? I want this magic bread. And notice in their answer, there's so much like us. Notice in their answer, they are absolutely certain that whatever it is God would require of them, they could accomplish. Tell me what I have to do. I've got my pad, I've got my pen. Give me the list. I'll check it off, I'll take it to the Son of Man, and he'll give me that bread. Just tell me. How do I earn it? What do I do? I can do it, no problems. And these are our people. Again, Jesus, he doesn't walk away Shaking his head, he, 
He doesn't walk away in frustration and disgust like I probably would. His patience is so profound. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Here it is. Ready? Get your pad and your pen out. This is it. That you believe in him whom he has sent. There's no special, unique accomplishment that you have to perform. No no actions you have to get right in order to have this eternal life, this zoe. No, the work that God requires is simply faith. And it's not even faith in the abstract sense. It's faith in the one whom he has sent, a real person. The work that God requires for this quality of life is to believe in Jesus. That's your obedience. I mean, how could it be otherwise? I mean, really, what do we have to bring to God in exchange for this life? Our best efforts, our very best efforts, compiled over an entire lifetime, are like monopoly money in God's kingdom economy. They just don't work. It has to be this way. Friends, we can't earn or maintain our place in the heart of God. Jesus lived for us the life we have never lived, and he died for us the guilty death we don't want to die. But now, because of him, all that we can do and all that we have to do to receive his mercy is to come to him with the empty hands of faith. Believing that he is who he says he is. And we will have this zoe, quality of life. We receive it, Jesus is saying, by believing. And yet so much like those who are listening to him, just be human. We want to believe. And yet we keep wanting to prove how valuable we are to God. And so we continue to have a hard time even trusting. And Jesus knows this, so keep listening to him. Verse 30, they said to him, great, I think. I mean, I added that, but. (laughs) What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They just ate, right? Yesterday? All right, just, just. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Okay, I hear you, Jesus, but I need you to answer some questions first. I need you to validate this for me. In fact, we have a way in mind for you to validate, right? What you did yesterday, that was pretty cool. But can you do what Moses did for 40 years? I need some more evidence, Jesus. I need some more proof. Friends, don't shake your head at their skepticism. Our skepticism is just as staggering. If he just do X, Y, or Z, whatever it is that you've built up in your life, that if Jesus could just knock that thing down, then you'd actually believe. Whatever question it is, if I just had this answer, if he just solved this problem, then, then he's done enough for me to actually believe. I'm going to watch my clock very carefully. I, I don't know, but this is a fun one. This is where reading John this way becomes so much fun. 
Because remember, even this story that's in the middle of a chapter isn't part of a much bigger, bigger book. And John is writing a larger message, but it's in a much bigger context of all that God has done for his people. So John is writing this in such a way that what God has done for his people in the past is, is kind of creeping its way into how he's writing so that those who would read this and hear this would have all kinds of things going through their mind and they would hear in Jesus' statements things that people missed right there in the moment with him. So if you think back to what John said in the very beginning of John chapter 6, I'll go as fast as I can. He gave us a couple little nuggets in there that seemed like, why did you put that detail in there? He said when they were gathering on the hillside for Jesus to teach, he said in verse 4 that it was at Passover. What difference does that make? Well, Passover was the celebration that God had given his people to remember God's gracious and powerful deliverance of them from slavery in Egypt. Every single year they celebrated that, remembering God delivering them from Egypt, providing for them in the wilderness and bringing them to the promised land. So that's where they're gathering to remember And when God called Moses to lead his people back then, Moses was frightened. And he said, who do you want me to tell them has sent me? Who do you want me to tell the people has sent me to come and do this? And God said, tell them that I am sent you. I am that I am. That's God's name. That is God's personal, covenant, committed name to his people. A name that summarizes all of God's characteristics, all of his power all of his glory, all of his mercy, all of his wisdom, not just in general, but specifically for his people. Tell them I am sent you. And so Moses goes and he does what God told him to do. And they begin to leave and they find themselves at the edge of the Red Sea. So Moses prays and God parts the sea, right? They get across the sea, they're in the wilderness, they get really hungry. Moses prays, God provides manna, bread from heaven every single day. The people have to trust God to do it day in and day out, but they do, and God provides, right? John chapter 6, it's Passover. The people are gathering. They're getting hungry. Jesus just takes bread, multiplies it, and feeds the people. Twelve baskets left over. Random detail, right? Twelve tribes of Israel that God led and cared for and fed throughout the wilderness. They get to the Red Sea. They can't get across. Moses prays. God parts the water. After he feeds the people in John chapter 6, what does Jesus do? He doesn't have to pray after do anything. He just walks across the water. Just walks across the water in the middle of the storm. They missed it. They got scared because it was Jesus. Do you know what calmed them down? Jesus said, don't be afraid. It's I. Exact same words we translate I am. What calmed them down? Don't be afraid. It's, it's I. I am. Jesus was revealing to them in that moment where they understood it and not the nature of his person. Israel sitting here, listen, all conceived about Moses. Moses was the prophet. The Messiah is coming. He's going to do things like Moses. You do what Moses did. Listen, I'm not just like Moses, I'm greater than Moses. Moses prayed and God parted the sea. Moses prayed and God fed his people. Jesus just walks across the water. He just gives thanks and distributes the bread. As God did, so Jesus does. He's not merely like Moses. He's greater than Moses. But the people saw the sign and they missed what it signified. 
And John writes this so that as we're reading and thinking and we're seeing it, like, oh, oh, this is who he is. But they missed it. So again, his patience, verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, he's getting strong again. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father, and now he shifts tenses, look at this, gives, present, active, indicative, is giving to you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, this Zoe giving, nourishing bread, is he, a person, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It wasn't Moses who gave you that back then. It's my Father who's now giving you, right now, the true bread, the true Zoe giving bread. And it's in me. It's in a person who's come down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so they said to him, give us this bread always. It's like, oh, the infinite patience of Jesus. They seem to still be missing it. So again, he doesn't walk away. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the power of God to give life to you. I'm not like all these other breads. I'm not like these sweet poisons of false infinites. I'm not like these hyper-real promises that leave you exhausted and hungry and thirsty of soul. I don't leave you merely existing. In me there is life. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the means and the meaning to life. I am all you need. And you can see in what he was saying, how he's trying to clarify it for them as clearly as possible right here. Coming to Jesus is the same thing as believing in the one the Father sent. So coming to Jesus for Jesus is what it means to believe in Jesus. Coming to Jesus as the only true bread for your soul is what it means. That's what faith is. It's simply coming to Jesus for who he is and receiving from him the satisfaction that only he can offer. That's what it is. Friends, Jesus gives us reality. Real life, not false infinites. Real life. The deepest desires of living, to be known, to be valued, to be included. He satisfies those things. It's in him that you're seen It's in him that you find value. And it's in him that you're truly included as he brings you into his own family. I mean, at our core, that's what we all want. That's what we're pursuing life to be in all these other things. And Jesus comes and says, that's what I'm here to give you. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But here's where the reality of the Bible is. It's just so enjoyable. Verse 36, but I said to you that you've seen me and you don't believe. You've seen me and you don't believe. If you think somehow getting all of your questions answered will then free you up to come to Jesus, you're missing it. Our our unbelief is the best way I can say it. Our, Our unbelief 
It's not a series of topics that we have to tick off answers to. It's deeper than this, and it requires a deeper answer. Which is why Jesus has yet to turn his back on them, and he keeps helping. Verse 37, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Friends, that changes everything. If what Jesus just said right here is true, and I believe it is, it's absolutely stunning. He doesn't say that when you have all the right answers to the test, that when you come to me with all the right conclusions, he doesn't say when you come to me with all of your motives purified, he says anyone who comes to me even with the most half-baked ideas and uncertain motives I'll be there for you. Do you realize that he sees all of those things more clearly than you do? And he's not put off by them. He's not put off by them. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Listen, the Father isn't waiting on you to get all of your questions right, all your answers right, all your motives right, all the things right. The Father is taking the initiative and he is bringing doubtful, broken sinners like you and I to his Son as a gift for his glory. That's what he's doing. I love how Ray Ortland talks about the love of God the Father. He says the love of God is too great to be limited by your capacity to receive it. It's only defined by God's capacity to give it. And he said, if that's true, it's a game changer. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 37. And we need to stare at it for a little while. God loves as only God can because he is giving sinners like you and me to his son to the praise of his glory and grace. And do you know what Jesus is doing? Oh, so he's so different than you and I. He sees every sinner coming to him and he doesn't go, really? That one, dad? That's what I would do. Not about any of you, but <laughs> other people. Like, really? That one? He sees you. It's so hard to believe. He sees you. And he sees another reason to be happy. It's another gift to him from his father. One more reason for Jesus to marvel at the father's love. That's the reality that changes everything. But again, the Bible's so real and so human. The responses are mixed, just like they are right now in this room. Verse 41, some still grumbled. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus wasn't giving them what they wanted the way they wanted it. He wasn't conforming to their predetermined expectations of him, their perceptions of him, and he wasn't going to relate to them on their terms. And he still isn't. More often than we want to admit, we still grumble when Jesus doesn't conform to our expectations. When he doesn't act according to our perceptions, and we grumble. 
and we begin to doubt his generosity and his power. But he still doesn't turn his back on him. And all of it, he still doesn't turn his back on him. One more thing. This is a long, one more thing, I promise. We'll wrap up. It's just so good. It's such a long chapter. I'm sorry. One more thing. Verse 47. We'll skip down. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That's what he's already said, right? Verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. And I have to wonder, was he like, Pointing to himself, like, I, what was his face like when he did this? I, don't, you know, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. <laughs> if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He just took a left turn for him right there. He just took a left turn. Verse 52, the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He's talking words and language of sacrifice here, right? That's what he's talking about. A sacrifice when something would have to die on behalf of something else and the meal that they would eat after the sacrifice. He's talking about this language of sacrifice and he just took a left turn for him. So Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink and whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread our fathers ate in the wilderness and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And whoever just yelled preach is like, oh, I should have said stop. (laughs) (laughs) The great art of speaking is knowing when to stop. And man, I had you already and then I lost you. But listen to him. Verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 59, whoever eats this bread will live forever. Eating is believing. Believing, he's already said, is coming to him by faith. This is what was bothering them. You eat this bread by coming to him and believing that he is life. And he's able to be this life. And this is what was scandalizing to everybody right there. Why they all just kind of... They understood in that day in a way that we don't really comprehend that for you and I to eat something and live, something has to die in our place. That fish that he fed them with the day before, it had to die for that crowd to live. Either it died and they lived or they don't eat it, they starve, they die. Jesus has been dealing with their heart all along trying to use this reality to help them And Jesus is saying now in the language of sacrifice for those that were listening, either he dies the death that we deserve as a sacrifice to die and we feast on his sacrifice or we remain dead in our sins. He came from God to give his life for us and one has to die the death our sins deserve. He died that death in our place for our sin and he is offering himself as the staple item in our spiritual diet. 
and we either eat, come to him, believe in him, or we remain dead in our sin. You've it's been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert this Green life, at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. In for more information about the church and to hear to other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. In him. One last time, he is reminding them that what God requires is to come with the empty hands of faith and say, nothing but the one that God has sent can do helpless sinners any good. The very thing we sing around here is sometimes, nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross. Your sacrifice in my place for my sins do I cling. I'm banking everything I am on you. I believe. Help my unbelief. Friends, at some point this week, you are going to be spiritually hungry for life. And somehow and in some way, you are going to try to feed that hunger. Are you feeding on Jesus day by day? Friends, Jesus is the only bread that will break for you that you might live. All the rest, all the sweet poisons of false infinites and hyper-reality, all of them will ultimately only break you. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. When John said that what Jesus had to say was hard to listen to, some of your Bibles say hear. That's a hearing with a, a, a lens towards obeying, accepting. Many of his disciples, these are people that have walked with him. Jesus is somewhere around his second year of ministry in this story. These aren't people that showed up yesterday, ate some food and stuck around. These are people that have walked with him, heard him, seen him, lived with him. They heard what he had to say about him being the only real source of life. Him being God made man. It was too much. He wasn't going to play according to their expectations. And they walked away from Zoe, from life. And so Jesus said to the 12, verse 67, do you want to walk away as well? That's the question for all of us this morning. Do you want to walk away as well? But my heart is so entangled by so many empty things. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. I've got so many questions. I mean, what about the dinosaurs? I've got so many things. <laughs> Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. I wander so much. So much. My motives are so, so impure. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. That's the real Jesus. It's not the Jesus of misguided expectations. That's not the Jesus of your perceptions. That's the real Jesus. That's why Simon in verse 68 said, Lord, where are we going to go? 
to whom we're going to go. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to feast? Jesus is the one who gives life to all who would come to him and believe. Something, something is going to be your sustenance this week. Is it him? If it's not, it will spoil. It will not endure. It will leave you just existing. He is the bread of life. Whoever feeds on him shall not hunger and shall not thirst. So come to him. Come to him and believe. Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond. Father, we need the miracle of your Holy Spirit. We don't want to find ourselves in the group that that ate, that walked, that listened, that enjoyed, and then walked away to merely exist on things that can never satisfy. Lord, give us ears to hear your word about your son this morning that we might come to him in faith. Give us the courage to come to him in faith to leave all the sweet poisons of false realities behind and find real life in Christ. We ask that you would do this in his good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, And to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.